Well, howdy. If you have a Bible, jump to Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 16. My name is Kevin Barra, and I am formerly known as the uh, youth pastor at the Anderson campus. I'm currently the, uh, ca- uh, the college pastor over at our Southwood campus, and so excited to be with you here this morning. I uh, see a lot of faces that I, I knew uh, as a youth pastor here for a number of years, and excited to be back. If I haven't given you a hug yet and greeted you, I'm sorry. Uh, stick around, and I'd love to, to greet you again at the end of the service. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mar- Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Let me read it for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Now Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And and Jesus, I, I know that this is a challenging call for all of us to follow you regardless of the cost. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and inspire us to be the types of people you are longing to create. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin by telling a story about how I got engaged to my wife. Um, And the reason is this. um, Because when you communicate your intentions to someone, it is a powerful moment. And so for me, uh, I I was actually, uh, it took a while for me to get engaged. Um, I dated my now wife almost nine years before we got married. So we started early though, it makes sense. Uh, She was 14 and I was 16 when we started dating, right? And so we weren't going to get married at like, you know, 17. And uh, we we waited a little bit longer. And and so we, we got to, you know, kind of the end of college. She graduated college in three years. I graduated in five. That shows you the type of intelligence we're working with here. And uh, 
she's very smart and she was starting veterinary school and, and I was doing um, uh, my time and, and, and I was thinking to myself, all right, do I want to commit myself to this person? Am I ready to spend not just nine years, but the rest of my life with this person? And so I'm wrestling with that, thinking about that. And I came to the, the end of, of my fifth year of college and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to do it. Now, at that point in time, I was actually going to be going to train for the Olympic trials and I was going to be in Utah for most of that time. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to get married, but I got to get all the pieces together so that I can get married. Our families were going to all be in California at the Olympic trials. And so I'm planning out this whole thing of how I can engage her, celebrate with the whole family and be there in this moment. And, and so I'm in Utah at this time, Park City, Utah. And I say to myself, there's no way I'm buying this ring in Utah. And it was nothing against Utah. I was just never going back there. And so I was like, I'm not going to buy a ring here in case there's issues with it. And so I call my sister up and I said, Allison, you've got to get a ring for me. Here's the description. Here's what I want. And you need to give it to mom so she can fly it to me to California so I can have it for the moment. And so they do it. So they buy the ring. She sends me pictures. She gets the ring, gets it to my mom. She puts it in her purse, flies to California, gives me the ring. I put it in my bag in my hotel room. And at one point, like people came and visited and, and Hillary like comes in with them and we're in the hotel room. Like, don't look in the bag. You know, there's that, that tension. Um, I ran my races and then I get to the end of the Olympic trials and I'm saying to myself, I'm like, this is it. This is it. So we rented a car. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I'd never been to Lake Tahoe, but I'm like, I got to find this secluded place where I can declare my love for this woman, right? And so I drive up, I find this perfect spot overlooking this beautiful lake. I lay out a picnic blanket. I got roses there, little snacksies, the whole thing set up beautifully. It's perfect. And I bring her down. She goes, you know, I ask, do you know what's going to happen? She's like, I kind of see the writing on the wall, you know, I mean, Took me nine years to figure this out, but yeah, I see where this is headed. And, uh, and, and I stand her there and I said, I said, Hillary, I love you with my whole heart. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And I got on one knee. So will you marry me? And she said, yes. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was that beautiful moment when I declared my love. This is who you are to me. You are so special, Mitty. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And she says, I want to do the same thing. I'm committing my life to you. And the reason I start there is because that's exactly where we are in this moment with Jesus and his disciples. Where there's this identification moment. Who am I to you? Jesus is asking. And so he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. The furthest north he will ever travel, some 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. And he gets his boys in this excluded moment, this secluded space where he he asks them the question that we all need to know the answer to. Who am I to you? This is Jesus' own divine DTR moment. Define the relationship moment right here. And so it begins by asking them what their confession is. He asks them the question this. He asks the disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so the first question that he asks is this, who do the people, as you're milling around among the crowds, as you see all these people talking about me, who do they think that I am? 
It's a, it's a general question, and they, they answer in a general way. Well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Some believe you're John the Baptist. Literally, some people thought that Jesus was, after John the Baptist was killed, he rose to life, and that was the reason he could perform all of these miracles, and they thought Jesus was actually just a resurrected John the Baptist. Some, some thought you were that guy. Others people say, no, you're, you're Elijah. Elijah was taken up in a windstorm by God. He actually never tasted death. And, and there's reason to believe in some minds that maybe Elijah would come back and usher in this messianic kingdom. And so some people think you're that guy, this Elijah that came back to earth. Or some people think that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. There's this mystery. We don't really know who you are. And I tell you what, we see four disordered images. None of them really knew who he was. And in our culture today, in this day and age, there are still distorted images of who Jesus is. Benjamin Franklin, one of our early presidents, wrote this of Jesus. He was basically a moral teacher. He says this, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I, apprehend it as, but I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. He says, Jesus was basically a good moral teacher. We've corrupted some of his sayings. We, we, don't, we don't know have all the right pieces, but Benjamin Franklin would say we've, he was a great moral teacher. Other people would say that he was a prophet. The Muslims believe that Jesus was, was a prophet akin to, to Muhammad. He was a precursor to Muhammad. And so one of the greatest prophets our world has ever seen. Mahatma Gandhi said this, the lives of Zoroaster, Jesus, and Muhammad, I have understood them and they have illuminated many of the passages of the Gita for me. One of the, um, one of the teachings in the Hindu faith, the Gita. And so w- what he's saying is this, Jesus is on a line of many great prophets of old and they've illuminated some of my own thoughts, my, some of my own ideas. And so that's where Jesus is. He's a, he's a great prophet of old. Or maybe some of us would see that p- people just don't know who he is. He's, he's a mystery to us. Larry King, one of the great uh, reporters and interviewers um, in recent times, has, has said this. He was asked the question, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Mr. King's answer was that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. When the questioner followed with, and what would you like to ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. So there's this confusion about who Jesus is. Is he a moral teacher? Is he a prophet? Can we even know anything about him? In fact, right now, CNN is doing a study um, about who Jesus is. It's described as finding Jesus. Fact forgery or fiction, trying to figure out what can we know about this man? And Jesus knows there's always a lot of debate, a lot of division about who Jesus is. But then he turns the table on his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now in the Greek text, if you want to emphasize something, you move that word to the front of the sentence. And so he he literally says, you, who do you say that I am? And he turns the tide on them and puts the spotlight on their answer. And I'll tell you what, God does the same thing for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Is he a great moral teacher? Is he a prophet of old? Is he a mystery? We can never really understand him. Or is he something more? Bono did an interview uh, a, a little while ago. He was a singer with U2. Um, some of you love that. And he was a singer and he was interviewed. Uh, this interviewer asked him the question, well, who was Jesus Christ? He says, look, as, as you read the stories of Jesus, as you read his life in the gospels, you can only come to one conclusion. Either he was a lunatic. He was literally insane because he believed he was God or else he is the Christ, the one that has come into this world, the only one God. And that's the question we all have to answer. Who was Jesus Christ? And it's to that question that Peter gives the answer. He responds this way. Simon Peter replied, verse 14, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, Peter's statement is more than an acknowledgement, it's an alignment. He's saying, you are the Christ. You are the one that is anointed by God to come into this world. The the word Christ literally means anointed one. You would anoint a king and he would come into the world um, as the king that would rule. But there's something significant about this. He adds a title. You're the son of God. To the Jews, they believe that one would come in the line of David. And it says in 1 Kings that we would call him the son of God. In the Psalms, it also declares that there would be some messianic figure who would be like the son of God that would come and rule in peace and harmony like nothing we've ever seen. And Peter says, you're that guy. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that, that statement, that confession is a declaration about who Jesus really is. And the reason it's so significant is because words have power. What we say is significant. It's why I I would illustrate it this way. Your words actually align you with ideas. And so uh, I grew up with two older sisters. um, So I didn't actually see this play out, but I had buddies that grew up with brothers and you saw this type of thing play out all the time. One brother would start picking a fight with the other brother. So he would like jab him, punch him, push him over. Something would happen where the brothers would pick a fight. And then the older brother, the bigger brother, would inevitably decide to pin that other brother down on the ground. He'd pin him flat, usually with his legs on their knees. And then he would start chicken pecking on his chest, which is you take your knuckle and you just go peck, 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 on the center of his chest. And that little scrawny little brother is freaking out like, oh, stop it, quit it, quit it, quit it. And it's at that moment that that older brother can, can get certain declarations, confessions out of his younger brother in this vulnerable moment. And so he would say things like, tell everyone that I'm the, the most amazing brother in all the world and amazing person in all the world. No, fine. You're the most amazing brother in all the world. <laughs> Stop it. Nope. Now say, I am a dumb, dumb head. No, no, I'm a dumb, dumb head. Why, why as a little brother, is it so difficult to make those confessions? I mean, if you don't believe that they're true, it's because you don't want to, al- you don't want to align yourself with that reality. You don't believe it to be true, and so you don't want to say it. But when Peter confesses it, he declares that you are someone significant, and I'm aligning my life behind you. And his statement, Peter's statement, is literally a bombshell. 
Because he's saying, you are the anointed one. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are coming to this earth and I'm aligning my life behind you. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus is almost taken aback by it. He says in verse 17, Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There is something that God revealed uniquely to you, Peter. And see, not only is our confession first a declaration, it secondly gives us permission. You see what happens next? Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, you are Peter. You are Petros. And on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's this significant moment where Jesus gives Peter all sorts of permissions. This declaration means something, Peter. And what he says is you are Petros. You are Peter. And you... That word is basically transliterated rock. You are Petra. And he unites two ideas. You are a rock that I'm going to build my church off of. Now, there's been a lot of debate by commentators about what that actually means. Is it, is it merely his confession or is it actually Peter? And what we see is actually both. Peter is uniquely positioned in history to spread the gospel to the world. In fact, it's in Acts, at the very beginning of Acts, when the Spirit falls on the early church, it's Peter who stands up and starts preaching, and thousands of people come to faith in a moment. And it's also Peter who first opens the gospel to the Gentile world. He goes to Cornelius' house, shares the gospel, and immediately the whole house believes. Peter began the start of the spread of the gospel of the early church and to the Gentile world. And we see that this promise plays out in the life of Peter. He's one that starts, he's the first among equals to actually spread the gospel. And there's something significant with this. It says, Peter, what you're going to be a part of, the gates of Hades are not going to be able to stand against it. Literally, death will have no hold over this gospel. See, Hades was the place uh, of the underworld. They believed that the dead just waited there until they were uh, later released to be judged. It was this holding pattern that they believed in. And so he's saying, Peter, death itself will not stop the progression of this gospel. And he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, there's going to be things that you can unlock to spread this gospel forward. You are uniquely positioned to spread this word to the world. Now, is that, does that only happen in the life of Peter? Is there something that Peter uniquely has? Well, a couple of commentators have helped explain this to me a little bit better. There's one quote from J. Vernon McGee that I thought was helpful. He says, who are the keys of the kingdom? What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Were they given only to Simon Peter? No. Jesus gives them to those who make the same confession made by Peter. Those who know Christ as Savior, as Savior. If you are a child of God, you have the keys as well, as any person has the keys. The keys are the badge of authority of the office of the scribes who interpreted the scriptures of the people. Every Christian today who has the scriptures and therefore has the keys. If we withhold the word, we bind the earth. But if we give the word, we loose the earth. 
No man or individual church has the keys to the exclusion of the other believers. And A.T. Robertson, Robertson says this, every preacher uses the keys of the kingdom when he proclaims the terms of salvation of the gospel. He says this, he opens it up. It's not merely unique to Peter. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're aligned with him. And that means you have the ability to to bring the news of the gospel, that Christ is the son of the living God to everyone. And you have the opportunity to participate in that mission. You have the great opportunity to align yourself with Jesus and be part of what he's doing. But I'll tell you this, every confession comes in conflict with your comfort. When you say, I do, it brings conflict to you. And so I got engaged to my wife and it was wonderful. And then we began the process of preparing for the wedding. In other words, we created conflict, right? Because you know, we all know this, that, um, that as soon as you say, I, I want to marry you to this person, there's a whole process where you get both families involved and, and they all invite their friends and you try to invite your friends and they're like, we're not going to pay for your friends, we're going to pay for our friends. And, and so there's that tension that arises of whose party is it, who gets to celebrate, it's all there. If you're not married yet, get ready, it's awesome. And, and, and you work through that and then men, you go to Bed Bath & Beyond and Target and you spend untold hours saying, Sure. Yeah. That toaster's amazing. Those dishes, phenomenal. And then she confronts you. You're not engaging with me on this process. Like, you are not in it. Are you in this? And you're like, fine. I want that dish. Well, I don't really like that dish. Fine, I like that dish. Do you not care about this process? And you get to engage in that conflict. And I've talked to some people, and they're like, they're like I just want to elope and, and escape all of these challenges. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, little do you know, this is step one because we all know this. Every wedding is a funeral, right? It is. When you stand before that person and he says, will you spend your life with this person for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. And you say those wonderful words, I do that will come in conflict with your comfort because once you say, I do, it means you don't to a lot of other things. So gone are the days when you would come home from work, relax, get a thing of chips, sit on the couch and just kind of let the TV wash over your world. She's gonna come to you and say, what, how was your day? And a sweeping, good, won't cover it. She's gonna, she's gonna want details. How did you engage with that person? How was that thing that you did? How did you do that thing? And as you talk through, she wants to, you to listen with your face and engage with her and, and, and work through all of those issues. And if you don't, that I do is broken, right? She's like, I, you said richer for poor in every one of my conversations. So I don't care what you're paying, you're paying right now, right? We're doing this. I need you here. And it comes in conflict with your comfort. It does. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be with me, that will conflict with the things you find comfortable. And so at this moment, Jesus begins telling him about the future. He says, look, the son of man is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected and he's going to die. This will come in conflict with your comfort, men. And at that moment, Peter says, he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Rebuke literally means to confront and to 
to engage with in a harsh conversation. But why does Jesus say he must suffer? Why does he say that? And the way I would explain it to you is this way. Whenever we make a mistake, whenever we wrong someone, it creates a debt. And we, 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 we interpret it that way. So if you were to come over to my house and you were to hang out for a little while and then all of a sudden you were to break one of my lamps. I don't know why you're breaking my lamps. I don't know why you would do that to me, but you did it. And you break my lamp and, and, and there's a couple of different responses we can have. We could say, all right, well, that lamp was $100. You owe me $100 to replace the lamp. And you pay the cost. Or I could say, all right, that lamp was $100. Don't worry about it. I'll pay the $100 to replace the lamp. Or third, we could not replace the lamp and then we just deal with the fact that we've got $100 less light in the room and just walk around in the darkness, right? But someone's got to pay the cost if we want to replace the lamp. But it's not just true in economic terms. It's true relationally. If someone wrongs you, if someone insults you or, or hurts your reputation, it, it, it feels like they took something from you. And, and we even say words like, like, you owe me an apology. Or they have to pay. Because it's like a cosmic debt is created in the universe and, and someone's got to absorb that debt. Someone owes an apology. It's why forgiveness is so challenging. It's so hard to forgive someone because it feels like you're absorbing the debt they created. And and it feels like the whole universe screams, you owe me. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. There's a huge debt in the world. We've all wronged each other. We've all done things that we should. We've all said things that we shouldn't. And someone must pay. And it'll be me. Someone's got to absorb the debt. And it's going to be me. And he says, the son of man must suffer to take on this cosmic debt. And I'm not going to put it on you. I'm going to put the wrath of the world on me. And so that statement that Peter goes, okay. Jesus, we were just talking a second ago. I called you the Christ, the son of the living God. Conquering kings don't suffer. It's about promise and proclamation, not pain and suffering. And he pulls him aside and he rebukes him, which is not a good move. Like I wouldn't recommend rebuking Jesus for something he said. And then Peter, Jesus takes a look at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He uses some of the strongest language that we ever see Jesus use in the New Testament. He calls Peter, who he just called blessed, Satan. What a turn. Why? You ever wonder that? How do you just go from blessed Peter to you are the prince of darkness? Like how did that happen in two minutes? It's because of what Peter was aligning himself with. I mean, Jesus answers it. He says, you are setting your interest on man's and not God's. How was he doing that? Because Peter was offering the same temptation to Jesus that Satan did in the wilderness. See, Jesus went into the wilderness before he ever began his ministry. And as he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, Satan offers him three major temptations. He says, look, turn the stones into bread. Then you can just eat on your own. Enact your own will apart from the command of God. And then he says, hey, just throw yourself from the temple. 
Like just, just jump down and God will send angels and he'll carry you down. And that will be a, a sign that the son of man is descending from heaven. You will be crowned king immediately. No pain, no rejection, no cross. And then Satan says, okay, here, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bend your knee to me. See, it's the temptation. It's the same. You can have the glory without pain. You can have the kingdom without sacrifice. And the offer of the kingdom that doesn't cost is a gift of Satan. He says, Peter, there is no kingdom without suffering. This is the path the Father has laid toward for me, for all of us. He says, if you're on board with me, you're on board with this, that you will have to suffer. I have to suffer. And the same is true for you. He turns it on to them. He's, verse 24, he says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, I'm not only conflicting with your comfort, men, I'm gonna send you into conflict. When you align yourself with me, that means you're gonna be sent into the world with conflict. And I'll tell you this, alignment does this. There's an external conflict and an internal conflict. There's first an external conflict when it comes to alignment. So many of you went to Texas A&M University, right? Yeah, yeah, you did. About three of you, uh, which is surprising um, in this room. Um, so many of you went to Texas A&M University and there was that first moment when you bought that maroon and white shirt and you put it on and you went to the game and you're there like all together, all wearing your maroon, like we're in this people. And you were excited. You're like, I'm part of this thing. And then you went some random time to the school down the road, you know? And yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You got what I'm going, where I'm going. And you went down the road and then they, they mocked you for wearing that. They would say, hey, hey, I got a joke for you. And, and you'd be like, I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't want to do it. And, and they would mock you for being aligned with that way. You feel, I remember the, one of the early times I first uh, started working here at Grace, I wore an innocent orange shirt. It wasn't, yeah, okay. It, it, it wasn't helping, it wasn't for anyone. It was from like Old Navy, right? It was just an orange shirt. And I get all of these hisses across the board. They're like, What, what is y'all's problem? It's just an orange shirt. And they're just like, I'm just telling you, when you wear that, you align yourself with Satan. You know, like you, <laughs> you're aligning yourself with the enemy. Because that once you engage as an Aggie, you align yourself with something that's against everyone else. It's you and everyone else. And I'll tell you what, when you align yourself with Jesus, he'll send you into conflict. It means once you're his, that means lots of people now have a problem with you. I remember when I started, first started walking with Christ in college, I came back one summer and I was just dedicated myself. I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm really going to engage with Jesus. And, and as I start walking and, and not engaging in certain activities and engaging in others, there were some guys around me that said, yeah, yeah, that's Kevin. He's into his Christian thing. You might experience that. I know I have the privilege of working with lots of fellows here at Grace Bible Church and some of them in choosing to follow Jesus and dedicate their life to him have been rejected by their family. I have the amazing privilege of working here and 
and sending some people overseas to nations that where it's illegal to name the name of Jesus. And in order to walk with Jesus and spread his word, it means not merely will they accept the ridicule of friends. They may accept the ridicule of nations. For some of them, even to their death. And Jesus says, that's what you get to be a part of. You will encounter external conflict, but not merely external conflict from the world, internal conflict. The way Jesus says it is, is, is telling. He says, he says, and Peter took him aside and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he goes on to say this, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, you've got to take up some internal drive. And he goes on to say, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give for his soul? He's just describing this internal conflict that all of us will have in walking with Jesus. And the way I summarize it is this. There are some ways that you can spend your life that are a waste of time. And there's some ways that you can spend your time that are a waste of your life. So I remember as a youth pastor, I took, out, took some guys and were eating uh, tacos at one of the taco places here in town. And there happened to be a, uh, one of those claw machines, you know, like you kind of get like a little random little toy when you negotiate the little claw, right? you know what I'm talking about? And, and I'm sitting there with those guys and I, I kid you not, this group of sophomore guys spent about $10 trying to get some horrible little stuffed animal. And, and I'm watching them, I'm like putting quarter after quarter in on this machine and finally they got like this little pink bear, grabbed it, brought it over, dropped it down and they're all celebrating this pink bear that they spent 10 bucks on out of this little machine. I'm like, y'all are idiots. You wasted your money, you wasted your time, you wasted my time because I had to watch you do this thing. And you look at it and you're like, I just can't believe that you would waste your time doing that. I tell you what, for many of us though, the moments we spend in life aren't merely just a waste of time. They add up to being a wasted life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of anxiety. We can spend all of, our energy, all of our energy, all of our time, all of our lives accumulating these things. And at the end of the day say, all of these things, this, this stuff I've accumulated is ultimately a waste. Because when you sit on your deathbed, no one wants that piece of furniture anymore. And you're trying to figure out who to pawn it off after. Your house, you just got to sell. Everything you have at the end of your life may not amount to much because there's only two things in life that last for eternity. The word of God, the Bible in your hand and the souls of men, the person sitting next to you. Everything else we chase and accumulate won't matter when he comes. But it comes at a cost. It's hard to give up the things that we hold so close. But Jesus says it's worth it. He says it's worth it. In verse 27, he says at the end of it, he says, look, 
you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds and he's going to repay everyone for what they sacrificed. When I come again, he, he uses a, a, a image from the prophet Daniel. He says, the Daniel says that the son of man, the Messiah is going to come descending on the clouds. And Jesus says, that's going to happen in the future. There's going to be suffering and then there's going to be conquering. And that's going to be later on. And now you're going to see me coming on the clouds. And I'll tell you what, everything you sacrificed will be worth it then. All of the pain you endured today are part of my plan. And it will be worth it when I come again and repay everyone for what they gave. Every tear you shed, every wrong you endure, everything that causes you pain will be fixed on that day. And Jesus is saying, look, at the end of the day, it's worth the sacrifice. Now I try to make all my sermons extremely practical. So I'm gonna tell you, this is what it means for you. For some of you, it means that you need to engage with your neighbor for the gospel. You have not, you've chosen not to talk with them. It's awkward or, or tension would rise or whatever. But for some of you, you know God is saying, I need to reach out to that person. And so it's your responsibility to say, all right, Lord, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna engage with them. For some of you, it's, it's people at work that you actually engage with them in a, in a gospel conversation. You invite them to church. You, you engage relationally. For others of you, it's, it's leadership. God's been tugging at your heart to, to lead a Bible study or to start a home group, and you've been resisting it because you're like, I'm just not sure, but it's worth the risk to start engaging in that way. And for others of you, God has been tugging at your heart to go overseas to spread the gospel and he's been drawing you and poking at you and now it's time to say, all right, Jesus, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna absorb the cost because you're worth it. It is worth the pain when I can be part of the goal. And that's the reason I love football. What? Now, I love football for this reason. You see a variety of people with a variety of gifting, all sacrificing for one goal, right? And so you got 300 pound dudes, right? They're not good at a lot of other things, but they're good at this thing, being a wall. That's, the, that's, their, that's their gifting. I can be firm and not let you get around me. That's what they're good at. I remember I had a buddy of mine, he played pro football. He was a defensive lineman and I watched him throw a football one time and it was horrible. Like, I was like, you played football your whole life. You played professional football and you can't throw a ball. What's, what's going on? He's like, dude, it is not within my skill set. I'm like, fair enough. But you need other guys with that skill. You know, you need a quarterback that can sit in the pocket, and just throw bullets, throw bullets to different people. You need other guys that are extremely athletic. They're shorter, they're stocky. They could just run that ball and juke everyone and get past, get some yards for the team. You need other guys that are, they've got spring-loaded legs. They just jump and snag anything from the air and will make completions and make yards. And you need one guy who's not good at anything. Um, he's not that athletic. He's not that fast. In fact, he doesn't play most of the game. Right? Like he's just kind of a part of the team. And, but there's one moment in the game, there's three seconds left. He's been sitting there drinking Gatorade for like the past two hours. And they're like, buddy, you're up. And he walks his way out there, you know, loosens up his leg. And he stands there behind all the athletes and he stands there and they hike it and he runs and he kicks it and he makes it through two little posts and everyone goes crazy. 
right? 300 pound men are crying. Like, we did it. We did it. You know, they're hoisting this 150 pound dude up, carrying him off the field. You did, you did nothing the whole game, but you did it. You did it. And they're all celebrating his contribution. And I'll tell you what, that is the kingdom of God. All of us have different skills. All of us have different abilities. We're all called to do different things. But Jesus says, you will be rewarded when you sacrifice your life toward this great goal. So don't sit on the sideline doing nothing. You be preparing because there's something I'm doing in the world that I want you to be a part of. And I tell you what, one of the worst things you can do with your life is to waste it chasing small things when God says there's a great thing I'm trying to call you towards. To spend your life counting up and putting points on the wrong scoreboard when Jesus is saying, look, be on my team, go in my direction, and we can change the world and it will be worth every sacrifice. Come with me. So where are you this morning? Jesus says, take up your cross, the implement of death and pain, and you walk behind me. What's Christ calling you to this morning? I would encourage you to take a moment and think about it. And I will end us in prayer. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I know there's so many of us here that... um, that have known you, that have confessed that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and we're here because we love you. We genuinely love you. I know there's many of us here that have have made this tough sacrifice. We've said, Jesus, I'm losing friends or um, opportunities because of my choice to align my life with you. I know there's many of us in this room that have been there. But I also know, Lord, there are some in this room that have have first never committed their life to you. They never simply said, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And Lord, I pray right now that they might believe that you are the son of God who has given your life to save us. For others of us though, I know that there's something holding us back from full dedicated discipleship toward your call. And so Lord, I pray that whatever it is that we're holding back, that we've thought about, we would simply lift it to you and say, Lord, this is it. This is what's stopping me from fully committing my life to you. We would hold it to you and say, Jesus, command me what you will, but then will what you command. Send me, I am willing. Father, I lift up every person here and myself that you would inspire us and instruct us to continue to follow your cross and your call. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys have an amazing spring break.